Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, November 14th. We begin with an update on the war in Ukraine, with international pressure mounting to negotiate a ceasefire of some type. We dig into how realistic the idea is and what it would look like. We speak with Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. It's hard to imagine surviving in a new country and not speaking the language. We learn about a Calgary-based program offering Ukrainian newcomers a crash course in the English language. Pledge Day is just around the corner. 770 CHQR is once again working to raise funds in partnership with the Calgary Children's Foundation. Our on-air contributor Dave McIver brings us the details on a local charity dedicated to supporting families caring for children with rare, life-limiting diseases. And finally, according to a new report, Canadians aren't unhappy. We discuss why this is the case and get some tips on how we can be happier. Author and professional speaker Peggy Sullivan joins us for another edition of Motivational Monday. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky made a visit to the newly liberated city of Kherson over the weekend with details on the latest on the war in Ukraine. Now 264 days into the Russian invasion, we're joined by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning, Andy. Um, Let's get right to it uh, as far as what we've been seeing over the past, I would say, several weeks, if not a couple months. Does it appear, or it appears to me anyway, through your eyes, that things are going better for Ukraine than Russia at this point in the conflict? Oh yes, I mean absolutely. Um, with the with the particularly with the seizure of Kherson over the last few days, uh, that is a major uh, Ukrainian operational level victory, and that's basically number three. Uh, the battle for Kiev in, in March was number one. Uh, battle for Kharkiv in uh, the summer was number two. This is number three. And what that has done is and effectively put the Russians on the strategic defense. Uh, they have withdrawn across the Dnieper River and established what appear to be strong fortifications on the other side, still protecting, and this is very important to remember, that the land bridge to Crimea mm-hmm. and the fresh water supply along a canal that supplied Crimea. So the Russians still hold important ground. They haven't lost the war. They are on the defensive, but the Ukrainians certainly have the momentum. Now, and the question then becomes, where does this go? And, you know, you've got General Miley, uh, the American uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who on uh, last Wednesday in New York uh, publicly commented on this thing and said, basically, you know, the Russians and the Ukrainians have both sustained 100, approximately 100,000 casualties each side, dead and wounded. This is the first time that we actually have a Western source talking about Ukrainian casualties. There's been a lot of figures thrown around about Russian casualties. But now you've got this hundred, hundred thousand. That's a very, that's new, and that's important. Then Miley continued on to say, you know, with these figures, uh, neither side uh, is strong enough to impose a complete defeat of the other. Again, no one has actually said that. So these are important statements. That means that now on the strategic defensive with winter coming, late fall, that cold, wet period, and then the freezing period comes, what's going to happen? And are we going to have negotiations? This is now everyone's question. It's everyone's question. We'll get to that a little further in a second because I know that, you know, as far as Ukraine is concerned when it comes to resources and tech being propped up by several, several countries across the globe, and now we've been hearing over the past 
handful of days or a week and a half or so that Russian forces have been propped up to a certain extent by Middle Eastern uh, you know, states. So mm-hmm. they are getting some yeah. help. Where, where else is Russia getting help from? Well, I mean, the main story is, is the Iranians. Uh, in terms of the missile supplies, like the, some missiles and, and, and the drone effects. But uh, we also have to remember that Russia still has its own armaments industry, uh, and they can still produce basic stuff. They, they, there's, there's shortages of chips, of course, but they can still produce basic artillery shells. They can produce basic uh, artillery pieces, and they can modernize or keep their tanks going, you know, and the, the simple stuff. I mean, what they did in World War II, you have to remember, they can still put out the basics. And they've got fair amounts of that. So they're not completely out yet. Uh, they can still fight, particularly in the defense, they can fight. And most intelligence analysts are, are, not, are saying that the Russians have the potential in the spring to come back with an offensive, as, of course, do the Ukrainians. So both, of, both sides could still be in a position this spring to launch offensives against each other. And this is what people are saying. If there is a period in time now to negotiate, it's between now and the spring. And we'll see if there's an appetite there. When when we say we'll see if there's an appetite, I think that we all know that this would would be best for everybody involved. But how realistic do you think it is? And who would be the first to broker this out of those two? Yeah, I mean, these are the questions. And, And so... I'll break it down a little bit for you. So, first question was, and this is all seems to have been resolved. Uh, the Ukrainian position, let's call it their maximalist position. First part of that was uh, no negotiating with Putin. Now, the Americans uh, were trying to convince uh, Zelensky that uh, Putin's not going anywhere, as far as we can see. And if he does go, he's going to, there's going to be someone tougher coming behind him, not someone nicer. So the question is, uh, in a realistic world, at some point in time, all wars end. And regardless of where the line finally ends, the Ukrainians will have to negotiate all probability with Putin. The Americans were public with that, with Jake Sullivan saying that, and, and, and Zelensky has backtracked and he's dropped the thing about no negotiating with Putin. So that, that, that's been successful. There's, there's an important step right there. Now, the other thing is the line. Where will the line be? And the Ukrainians, of course, are, are saying if the line is on the Russian border of Russia proper, which means uh, Ukrainian forces expel all Russian forces from occupied Ukraine, and most importantly, Crimea. And that becomes very, very difficult, that part of the proposition. Uh, because the Russians, for the Russians, uh, uh, Crimea is very different than the other four oblasts that are being contested right now. And the Russians will do everything to hold that. And there is also popular support in Russia for Crimea. For the, for the, the occupied territories of Ukraine and the four oblasts, it's not really. There's no great. Uh, there's no great enthusiasm, except for the ultranationalists in Russia who want that. So, the question is: Will there be a deal? And the Ukrainians saying there's no deal, but mm-hmm. that, these are early days still, and a lot of the stuff would come behind the scenes. And I suspect in Bali and Indonesia, as the G20 is now ramping up. There's a lot of that stuff going on in the corridors. I mean, Biden met with with Xi today. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was not going to be stated publicly. But I believe people are going to say, look, we need a line that's a compromised line of some sort. And the wiggle room would be somewhere in that Donbass area from Kharkiv down to Kershaw. There's that wiggle room space. Okay. Uh, just before we let go, we've got about 30 seconds left, Andrew. But uh, you know, every week, it seems like when we speak with you, or every two weeks, 
We talk about the nuclear option and perhaps some nuclear warfare being used uh, by Russia. Is that off the table yet or has that diminished? It's really diminished. Uh, it's really diminished. I think people have realized that 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 you don't fight nuclear wars, you know, I mean, and, and basically uh, there, there's a there's a no win there. And people have gone back to Cuba, 62, and people have remembered Kennedy was saying, I'll blow up the world if, if you guys come into Cuba, you see. And he wasn't talking about limited nuclear war because people understand you cannot fight limited nuclear wars and survive because they escalate to the thermonuclear level. So that's all. It basically people have put that behind now. I mean, it's not to say that it's gone completely. And if it get and if things, if Ukrainians ever push toward uh, uh, Crimea, that might that might come back again because the Black Sea Fleet has nuclear weapons. Yeah. Just physically, they're there. They're there, ready to go. Thank you so much for your time. Lots has happened since we last spoke. We appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Indeed, Andy. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's Andrew Rasoulis, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Calgary's Centre for Newcomers has partnered with St. Vlad's Church to provide Ukrainian newcomers with an English survival course to help them adapt to life in Canada. With details, we are joined by John Castro, Associate Director of Language Training Programs, and Marvin Antonio, Language Programs Coordinator at the Centre for Newcomers. Good morning to you, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. All right. I'll start with you, John. Tell us about this course and and how the idea came to be and, uh, you know, how long it's been operating for. Well, since last April, um, since everything was happening in Europe, uh, 9,500 temporary Ukrainian refugees have come to Alberta. And so collectively, the Calgary Newcomer Collaboration, so that's a partnership between the Center for Newcomers, the Immigrant Education Society, and the Immigration Services Calgary programs gotten together. And on a weekly basis, uh, like you've mentioned before, uh, we've been going to St. Vladimir's Orthodox Church uh, to provide information concerning the services that all these programs have to offer. And, and during that process, we've noticed that um, the clients are desperate to start classes right away. But unfortunately, the way the system's set up right now, mm-hmm. you know, there's a 50-day waiting list just to be assessed for link classes, language instruction for newcomer classes, which is a traditional way of getting into classes. And then there's a wait list on top of that once you get into the the service provider's waitlist system. So that can take about a year. So uh, we've gotten anonymous donors to provide funding, uh, to provide um, uh, the funding for setting up classes at the Center for Newcomers. At times which are low in the noon, in the afternoon and the evening, the classes are available. So that will start in in January of of, uh, 2023. All right, uh, Marvin, I want to ask you this. This is Marvin Antonio we're speaking with as well, Language Programs Coordinator at Center for Newcomers. Uh, Marvin, I remember my days in, in junior high taking French class. It was casual. It was maybe two or three periods a week. There wasn't uh-huh. that urgency. I just wanted to learn a new language. Tell us about the process when you say crash course, because I can imagine the culture shock being in Canada, the culture shock coming out of a war zone, and I have to learn a new language. How do you teach somebody under those circumstances? Well, our classes are basically focused on experiential learning where the teachers would be asking students about difficulties they would experience in true life situations. And then what's going to happen is the lessons are going to be designed according to those situations. So the students would not actually be taught what the teacher wants them to teach, but whatever the uh, students demand, Mm. that's what we're going to teach them. It, the, the idea is for them to be able to survive and communicate in the community. So it's, uh, it's a faster integration for them. 
And in that case, uh, for every situation where they have difficulties, they'll be able to communicate. Um, it's more focused on what we call a communicative way of uh, learning, where we the teachers act as facilitators rather than teachers, and students learn from each other. The curriculum is based on uh, developing the listening, speaking, reading, and writing skills, mm -hmm. while we're incorporating the life skills like employment, for example, health, shopping, uh, citizenship, and things like that. Very interesting. I'm wondering, uh, Marvin, while I still have you on the line here, how quick till you do see some success from students in a program like this? Like how, uh, how long does it take till you can start to see the wheels in motion and they can have some sort of an understanding or have some sort of a, a way to communicate? Oh, basically once uh, the, the, we give uh, what we call assessments to students to, after they learn a certain situation. Mm -hmm. And then after that, there would be like a real life practice for students. And they would usually give feedback to teachers that, I did this, this happened to me, I'm able to do this better. Mm -hmm. We'd often um, conduct uh, feedback from students also on how, what, uh, how well they used it or when they used it, where they used it. And for example, if a student said he was unable to uh, uh, ask for a price of, of a certain, um, let's say, uh, when he's doing shopping and yeah. he, he wants to say, ask for a price of a certain clothes that he wants to buy. And later on, he would then give feedback to teachers as I was able to do this, and this is what I did, and I made this response. We've actually measured the success of the way that students are able to communicate rather than try to grade how well they use the English. Incredible. It's a much-needed program, and uh, thank goodness there's uh, work like you folks to get this done from Center for Newcomers. We're tight for time, but I'm going to direct people to centerfornewcomers.ca and, of course, uh, some details on there to get in touch and to find out how you can help out as well because they certainly need some funding. Thanks so much, John and Marvin. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that is, of, of course, uh, John Castro, Associate Director of Language Training Programs at Center for Newcomers. And again, centerfornewcomers.ca. And we're also joined by Marvin Antonio, Language Programs Coordinator at Center for Newcomers. And as we move closer to our annual Pledge Day here at 770 on December 2nd, our on-air contributor Dave McIver is highlighting some of the charities that your hard-earned dollars go towards helping. Since 1992, the Calgary Children's Foundation has raised money for small children's charities in the Calgary area. Many recipients are not in position to do a large-scale fundraiser. Others reach a large number of children in need and or kids who are falling through the cracks. One of the charities that the Calgary Children's Foundation helps out with is Brady's Foundation. Jacqueline Tainch is the president of Brady's Foundation and Brady's mother. So I started Brady's Foundation um, because of my son, Brady. Uh, he was diagnosed with a rare palliative disease when he was four years old. And unfortunately, he passed away when he was seven. And through that four years, oh, I guess three years that we, um, that I cared for him, I just, I remember how exhausting it is for these families, how emotionally and physically demanding that it is caring for these kids. And I was so fortunate I had support from like my family and friends and community. And it just, as we went through it, I was like, how do people who don't have that kind of support, how do they do this? 
when the idea came and then luckily throughout caring for Brady and after um, I got in touch with a, or I got to meet a lot of people, doctors and nurses, and Brady impacted them uh, just as much as he did us or myself. And after Brady passed, they all wanted to help families just like us. So that's how it started. Um, what we do as a foundation is we provide financial support to families who are caring for children with rare palliative diseases. We provide financial aid or family support grants in three main areas. We do um, essential equipment, so wheelchairs, activity chairs, um, bath chairs, any type of equipment that will um, help the family with caring for their child. We help um, with the cost of medications, supplements, and feeding supplies that are not covered by any government or private healthcare plans. And we help with accessible infrastructure. So ramps, renovations, anything that will help um, moving the child around safer and also for the caregiver as well. It is insane the need for this kind of financial support and the impact that it has on these families. Um, it's, it's really hard to explain, but even this morning I sent out an email um, saying that a family had been approved and the response we got back was just, this family needs this, this is so important for the child, for their quality of life, for their quality of care. And a lot of people can't afford it and a lot of it isn't covered by anything. So it is just, it is life-changing for these families and for these kids to get the essential equipment that they need to make however long that they have left as good as it can be. We've only been active for one year now, already handed out, um, including the grants that we approved this week will be like almost $20,000. And we've had um, eight applications in just a year. And, or I guess we've had 10 applications, but we can't approve everybody. It, it's very in demand. Please join us for Pledge Day. And if you can, help out on Friday, December 2nd. The dollars you donate go to charities like Brady's Foundation. For 770 CHQR, I'm Dave McIver. National Emotional Wellness Month just wrapped up, but it's a topic we need to continue discussing. Joining us to talk about happiness, or more to the point, the lack of it, is Peggy Sullivan, women's leadership speaker, mindset expert, and founder of nonprofit She Can. Good morning to you, Peggy, and welcome to Motivational Monday. Thank you, and good morning to you. Uh, glad to have you with us. Uh, to start things off, tell us about the organization She Can. What is it? Absolutely. She Can is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to help women step into their power and become their best selves in every aspect of their life. So we really believe in emotional well-being, positive mindset, positive health, and professional development. Because if you don't have all three, it's like sitting on a stool with one <laughs> leg missing. It just doesn't work. I like that analogy. I'm an analogy guy, so I like the sounds of that. Um, I happen to not be a woman, uh, but I uh, am very interested in happiness and how to be happier. And I think that we all could learn something about, you know, how to increase that uh, in our lives. So tell us about the happiness report uh, that was recently released. Yeah, I'd love to. 
I was fascinated with what's going on in the country. And so I wanted to get a real pulse on what is the state of happiness in the country and how it changed post-COVID. Because we, we knew everything that was going on during COVID. But really, you know, as we enter this post-COVID stage, how are people feeling? And the results of this survey over and over again was that seven out of 10 people are surviving, not thriving. And one of the main catalysts behind that is they don't have the time to do the things that are important to them, the things that make them joyful, the things that make them happy. And so I know for me, what that meant is to help people figure out how to become happier. Because let's face it, there's a lot going on in the world we can't control. We've got, you know, health things, inflation things, rising gas prices, Mm -hmm. just a lot of stuff that is out of our control. But guess what? Happiness is something that you have the power to control. Yeah, well, you, your book uh, titled Happiness is Your Responsibility. I love that because I think so often we search outside of us and, and maybe think that somebody else or something might bring us happiness. You'd mentioned something that uh, piqued my interest, which was the time. We don't have the time. So how can we give ourselves more time to essentially, and in the end, end result, find more happiness? I call it finding your non-negotiables. And that is, you know, what are the three things that really, really bring you joy and making sure you have time for them every single day because they are the things that give you joy and what is more important than that? So I know for me, my four things are I love doing hard things, so I try to do something hard each day. I'm a health and wellness junkie, so I must work out and I must eat healthy. My family is important, so I spend time with my husband as well as my fur baby because he's my son when my, my son is grown up and gone. And then the last thing is just me time and making sure that I have an hour every single day to just process things and to really kind of get recentered. So I think it's really important that people know they're non-negotiables and they are exactly that. Don't give up your non-negotiables because nothing is more important than your happiness. Happiness is a superpower. And if you can be happy, there's so much more to life. You're healthier. You have more energy. You're less susceptible to chronic disease. Happiness is an amazing superpower. When it comes to these non-negotiables, as you call them, uh, Peggy, uh, to me, you know, we all have these intentions of maybe doing something for ourselves or something that we do enjoy that will bring us happiness, but our schedules get filled up. So one of the things that excites me, and it's so hard to do, is to say no when you're asked uh, of something that will fill your time. We have those responsibilities we can't ignore. There's no question. But to those things that we can put aside to give ourselves more time, how can we say no, Peggy? Oh, I have a great way to say no, and I've gotten really good at saying no. (laughs) And what I do is I don't say no. I say not now. I say, I'm sorry. Um, I just can't, you know, help you with that right now. So can we revisit it in a month or two? 
And usually most people won't regroup, won't come back and won't <laughs> ask for help then because what they need is immediate. So it's a way out with saving grace and a way out with letting people know you still care about them. And then also buys you a little bit of time to think about the ask and figure out if it's something you really, really want to do. I want to ask you this, Peggy, because I know that if I was, for example, if I was a running coach and I met with a client, they, you know, tell me that they have a certain run in mind that they want to complete or a time that they want to complete within their running, something super tangible. But as part of the challenge of your job and your quest, that happiness sometimes isn't the same tangible for everybody, that it is su- such a subjective thing. Is that one of the challenges in your job? Absolutely. Happiness is like a fingerprint. Your fingerprint is very different than mine. The things that bring me joy are different things that bring you joy. And I tell people not so much to focus on that end goal, that number, that destination, that thing, but try to value the process and try to value the fact that you are taking micro steps towards something and that one step further towards that is a really good thing and celebrate that and don't get so focused on that 10 minute run or I want to run a marathon and that's 26.6 but focus more on you know what today I did a little bit better than I did yesterday Mm. so everything is good. Peggy, I'm going to direct people to PeggySullivanSpeaker.com, and that's the best place they can learn more about you? Absolutely. And if they want to know more about She Can, they can go to the SheCanNetwork.com because we are looking for strong, powerful women that want the tools to step into their power. Great stuff. Thanks for your time, Peggy. Thanks for joining us. You're quite welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Peggy Sullivan, women's leadership speaker, mindset expert, and founder of nonprofit She Can.